how do we take effective action? And it's really about focusing on what is the right thing to do. You know, you've heard this, this phrase, you know, practice doesn't make perfect. You know, it's perfect practice that makes perfect. So we've got to practice the right thing to do, not just practice any old thing. So we've got to focus on what it is that we want to achieve and what is the right thing that we need to practice. And we then need to practice it and we need to keep on practicing it. We need to persist. And that takes grit and it takes courage. It takes energy and we have to do it all through the day that we're conscious. Today on the Courageous Podcast, we had Dr. Nicholas Alp. He's a board-certified cardiologist, clinician, scientist, drug development expert. He studied the brain quite a bit, and uh, you talked to him uh, and got a lot of information when you were actually putting the book together, right, Berman? Oh, he's he's my brain sherpa. I mean, he's he's been the one that like turned this into layman, and he also gave me permission to talk about this. Like, I felt comfortable with him that he could articulate it in a way where I could then go take it and translate it to the world. And honestly, this conversation what a surprise! Like, you know, bad pun, but mind blown. Take a listen. Hi, Doctor Nick. Welcome to the Courageous Podcast. Glad to have you on today. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, so obviously, we're we're doing this over Zoom in the, in the midst of COVID, but and I'm sure we'll get to that through our conversation today. But maybe you and uh, Ryan Berman can just tell a little bit about how you two met. Yeah, it's going back a few years now, isn't it? Um, we met through a mutual friend, and at the time, that friend and I were work, both working in a large global clinical research organization. Um, and I was doing quite a lot of work out in the States and doing a bit of work in, in the West Coast, San Diego, and I was having some good conversations with that mutual friend, and he thought that Ryan and I should get together. At that time, Ryan was beginning his journey to understand courage and to do more about it, and uh, we started having some very interesting conversations about how we think and how that all evolved uh, in humans over you know countless thousands and millions of years and how that leads us to automatic responses um, and what we can do with the thinking part of our brains to help modify that and overcome it and i think some of those conversations helped ryan shape his book and his program um, to try and lead the human species to a more courageous future <laughs> do you remember this Berman? yeah i don't think it's think i think it's 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 confirmed 100 percent. like like i call uh nick my brain sherpa like he he's been able to take this complicated well to me it's a complicated topic i i can't imagine i'm alone and try to make sense of the way our brains operate and the irony here ryan um is that nick and i we've never met it's all we're screen buddies. Yeah, I, mean, we, I can't wait for us to have a beer. Finally, I don't care what country it is, but let's <laughs> do mean, it. We we had a we had a plan, didn't we, to meet in Barcelona? Uh, I think this month, actually, Ryan, didn't we? But then this little virus caught up with us, and that those plans are going to have to be put on hold for a little while. But we're going to do it one day. We're definitely going to do it. Maybe yeah. it'll maybe it'll happen at your new house, which is where you are right now. You're in your yeah. You're, so if you got if, if you have to be quarantined somewhere, how, how's no the house? Place than right in the heart of the English countryside, surrounded by fields and woods. Um, so we're very lucky. It's no hardship at all. We're very very lucky. Well, thanks for uh, for joining us today. And again, I I think the idea here, obviously, if it's called the Courageous Podcast, it's to help give our audience the tools for them to take courageous action. And a big hurdle is what's going on upstairs. And again, I went to television radio school, so I had zero classes on the way the brain operates. Um, and then as I started to work on Return on Courage, it became clear that I should probably know what's really calling the shots here. So maybe we could start there. Actually, Nick, can you just give like a Cliff Notes one minute version on like your background and who you are, because I find this fascinating. Yeah, why, why on earth have you asked me to come and speak to you today? Um, <laughs> so I am 
now in my early 50s it doesn't feel like it i'm sure i'm i'm sure i'm a bit younger than that but um it all started when i was a teenager i wanted to be a doctor and a scientist and i trained at a couple of uh, colleges in london and i then went on to do a phd um, in immunology at cambridge university before completing my medical studies at oxford and i've spent most of my career as an academic cardiologist, so a physician and a scientist, mostly at Oxford University. Um, and about eight years ago, I, I joined the clinical research commercial industry, um, as well as maintaining a clinical practice and academic activity. Um, so that is briefly my path through my career to where I am today. So what I do now is essentially design and run uh, clinical research trials um, in patients and human beings to try and develop new drugs and devices to help people. That's what I do now. But uh, on a background of many years as a physician and a scientist, an immunologist, a cardiologist, but also always very interested in neuroscience, trying to understand a lot about what makes us tick, um, our personalities, our, you know, what constitutes good mental health and impaired mental health, how we can gain some sort of control over our desires and our instincts. All of that stuff has really interested me and continues to do so. Um, and so I like having conversations about that. And tonight's a good opportunity. I think uh, with our current situation, probably most of our audience and many in the world are, are thinking about this on a daily basis, you know, being stuck at home, having to deal with stress that is not normal in life. What, what got you so interested in the brain and, and how we work and you know, really kind of our thought process behind our everyday lives? I think it started very early. Um, you know, when I was a child, I was interested in, you know, how, I guess, friendship groups sort of started and, and evolved and, and ended and, and morphed um, all the way through my, my teenage years. And then in my early education as an adult, I was very interested in how human beings interact with each other and, and how we use language and you know, both verbal and nonverbal language to interact with each other, to connect and to collaborate and to get things done or, or fail to do so. Um, I just have always found it really interesting to really get a sense of what it is that makes us unique from each other, but also what common features we have. What are the common human needs and desires that drive us? Um, so where can we understand each other better? How can we understand ourselves more effectively and therefore be more valuable, happier, calmer human beings. Uh, all of that is a, is a life's work and it continues, believe me. I haven't got all the answers. I, I'm still practicing, still discovering all the time. So there was no particular one event, but uh, it's just a cumulative and abiding interest of mine. Um, so I read widely, I have a lot of conversations with people and I try things out all the time, try different tactics and approaches to see what works for me and what seems to work for other people. So I'm happy to share a, a little bit of those ideas today. And, and I think there's a, a huge interest in how we can control our innate instincts, particularly that relating to states of hyper alertness and fear and, and transform that into courageous action to use Berman's wonderful phrase. Yeah, Nick, I think there's something about, like, to understand yourself, you have to understand your mind. And when I talk to, like, corporate leaders, I'll talk about you spend all this time on goal setting, and then you, you apply a skill set to the goal set. Like, who's, who's qualified? But, but what about the mindset? Like, what about taking the mindset and getting the mind right? Like, have you overlaid that part? Have you built the mind muscle? right for the job at hand and to go back like this 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 thing called our brains this is where i love you because it's like just just making sure that people like me get the human speak side like can you walk us through what's going on up there like just give us like the basics of sure well i'll start with something a really simple idea how about this so brains really only do two things on the one hand they receive and process information and then they make judgments. That's what our brains do continuously in, a, in an endless cycle. 
So what do I mean by information? Well, that can be external information, our senses, our experiences, or a lot of the information comes from within ourselves, our bodies, our emotions, our rational minds, our thinking minds. That's information that's generated internally. And our brains receive and process that information. A lot of it is unconscious. A lot of it happens without our awareness or our rational thought. And very quickly, within seconds or less than seconds, brains are constantly making judgments. Is this thing safe? Is this thing going to kill me? Do I like it? Do I want it? Do I desire it? We're constantly asking ourselves these rhetorical questions, almost beneath our language. But that's what our brains are doing the whole time. Is it good for me? Is it going to harm me? Do I like it? Those are the questions we're just churning over the whole time. Sorry, so we can, add, we can add a lot of detail to all of that, but essentially the brains are just doing two things, receiving, processing information, and making judgments and decisions. I don't know if I love the judging part. I, I, you make it sound like we're all in an episode of Desperate Housewives, just judging everybody. I don't mean judging in a sense of uh, with a moral tone, or it can be, but the brain is assessing that information and filtering it and making, trying to make sense of it, trying to make meaning of that information the whole time. And the other way of talking about what brains do is to get a sense and a grasp of how did we end up with our human brains, okay? And we're going to have to talk about evolution here. And all, all of our morphology, but including our brains, are built in layers on what went before. So within our brains is a, a history of life on earth. And if you look at the way we develop from a fertilized egg all the way through to a, a newborn baby, and you look at the morphological changes through that embryo and that fetus and that newborn, you can almost see the, the passage of our own evolution over millions of years from single-celled creature to multi-celled creature to early life forms like fish and frogs. You know, in the first few weeks of life, we've got a tail, we've got gills. And those features form and then they disappear. And we gradually take our final human shape. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And nobody fully understands exactly how that happens. But you can almost see the entire passage of evolution of m mammals and animals in this world over the period of nine months until we finally take our human shape. And it's the same for a brain. So the brains that you know, we're, we're born with are built up in modules on, on our spinal cord. And the, the upper part of our spinal cord controls the very most basic functions, our, our, our most instinctive desires, like breathing, control of our heartbeat, control of our blood pressure, control of our appetite and our sleep and our sexual desire. So all of those most basic instincts to survive and reproduce are in the upper part of our brainstem. And then around that, literally physically surrounding it, is a, is a part called our limbic system. And that is made up of a number of components, but it's very closely applied to the, the upper part of the brainstem. And that that's very involved with memory and very involved with the generation and the processing of emotional states. So some of the most basic emotions like fear and anger and excitement and alarm. You know, these are the sort of survival instinct emotions. And then surrounding the limbic system and that emotional center is our cortex. And the cortex in, in humans is enormously expanded compared to all other animals, even some of the, uh, the most intelligent animals. And, and primates, ours is you know, several times larger in surface area and neuronal connection than even our closest evolutionary relatives, the great apes. And so th this has developed as a result of, of, of the evolution of language and our hands, tool making, culture. Um, all of this has gone hand in hand with the development of our, our, our cortex, particularly the frontal cortex right at the front here. And this is where we believe that we control our rationality, we analyze data in a more um, aware way, right? So the, the, these are where our thoughts are originated. 
And, but the point is that deep within our brains, we are nothing more than lizards. That's, that's a remarkable thing. So we're, we're this sort of higher order primate trapped on top of a lizard brain, right? That lizard brain that's responding to every little abnormal signal that's out there coming in to our eyes and our other senses or, or responding, responding to things that are happening inside our own bodies. And we're essentially in survival mode. And, and what we have to do is recognize that. That's the first step, is to recognize the creatures that we are and understand what fear is for and how valuable it's been. That's how we have got to the state of this part of our evolution, because we're survivors. We're surviving because we, rec- you know, we are able to recognize and respond to things that are, are dangerous to us and are going to extinguish us, right? But we've controlled our environment to such a great extent, right? So a lot of those innate fear responses are not always appropriate. And if, if we can't, can't turn the trigger off in our modern world, those sudden alarm bells can turn into something longer term and self-perpetuating. So the fear, the acute fear of falling or of being injured turns into chronic anxiety, essentially. That long-term, low-grade, very damaging state of chronic fear which is anxiety and tension and stress and low-grade anger a lot of these very negative and destructive emotions are coming from that that place that we don't fully understand and we can't always control but with more insight that we've got a better chance of being able to short circuit those reactions and get to a better place in our brains so that's hard to do for a lot of people. And, and we interviewed a, um, an astronaut. Her name is Loretta Hidalgo. And one thing she said to me, she, or, or to us, that stuck with me, she said, your thoughts aren't you. And I've been thinking about that since we talked. And when you started you know, describing your background and what you do, you said, um, there was two words I picked up. You said, you practice and you go through a discovery process and, you know, recognizing your lizard brain. I assume that this is like a daily thing that you have to manage in your thoughts because thoughts come in and out of your head. Some seem more rational than others. Mm. Some seem emotional. What do you, what do you do? How do you manage that? What are some of the strategies and tools that you've implemented on yourself and that you brought into your, your other practice to actually test and see results. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question indeed. And I think what we have to do is recognize, first of all, that we don't, we're not compelled, we're not destined to respond to every internal emotional stimulus that we have. We have an opportunity to create a little bit of space between that sensation, that emotion, that surge of anger or fear, and our physical and mental response to that. It is possible to separate that emotional trigger from our action, even if it's just for a few seconds. So this is a very powerful insight um, that even has only really become apparent to me in, in quite recent times, that what we have to practice is expanding that space. And that's something we can practice hour by hour, day by day, from just responding to that driver, whatever it is, excitement, anger, fear, craziness, um, and thinking, giving ourselves time to reflect, to analyze, to think, what is, what is this thing going on here? And what am I actually going to choose to do about it? So I, I love that quote from your astronaut colleague that, you know, we are not these thoughts. We are over here, actually, and we need more space to create that thinking, choosing entity. Berman, one more. I just, I was thinking about actually creating space and people have had a lot of time to do that recently, I would say, more than more than most maybe because you're not stuck in traffic every day or whatever going to work but 
that's so hard. Like, you know, as an American growing up in this environment, everything is like now, 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 faster, faster, faster. We went through the recession. It's like, okay, now you're working even harder. Mm. Now going through COVID, you're working at home, you know, like where, how do you, how do you just take the time to even remind yourself to do that? My, my mind races constantly, you know, and, and when I felt myself getting anxious, I, I try to just take a, a deep breath or a couple, right? But yeah. it can get lost so quickly when you're running from meeting to meeting or call to call or your kids are in your house with you. <laughs> you know, what are, what are things that you actually do to create that space? Well, I think you've, you've hit upon an absolutely excellent starting point, which is just to bring your attention to something very immediate and infinite, right? Which is your breath. For as long as we're alive, we're breathing. And something very simple and basic in terms of, for example, mindfulness or meditative practice, which is just to become aware of your breath and to bring your attention to that as it moves in and out of your body can be an excellent starting point to, to create that space. So you, you provided a brilliant answer to start off with. There are other things you can do, and we can maybe explore some of those in a little while. But before we try to discuss the solutions, I just want us to be aware of one other set of ideas, which is about the way our, our kind of cognitive minds tend to process the information and come to their judgments. And I think it's important for us just to be aware of that, some of the limitations, before we try to create solutions. Um, and, and this is a, the whole bunch of psychology called cognitive biases. Um, and I want to talk about four of them because they, they can hold us back. And again, if you, know, if you know the beast, if you know the thing you're trying to work on and you've got a name for it and you understand it and you recognize it, then it becomes a lot easier to, to do some work with it, right? So the first of this, the, these four biases that affect all of us all the time. The first is this thing called proximity bias, which is, you know, our brains pay attention to the most recent event. We all know that's true, right? We're, we're living in this three or four second moment of the present, right? The past is gone. We reminisce about it, but we can't do anything about it. We've got this, I don't know, what, how long do you think it is? I think in my life, it's about three or four seconds defines what I consider to be the present moment, my current train of thought. You think that's about right? It's not long, is it? It's just a knife mm. edge of time. and We live on that knife edge. It's quick. And then the future, we can plan and project and think about it, but it's, it's again, it's out of our reach. It's literally out of our reach. It's coming to us all the time. But we pay attention to the most recent event, always. So, and the recent, most recent event is not always the most important event. The second bias is this thing called intensity bias. So that's attention to the most intense event, right? You know, a loud noise, a very powerful emotion is going to register powerfully in our memories for a long time. It's going to echo in our memories. It's going to be something we, we think about. You know, the, the birth of our child, if we're blessed in that way, a major success, a major failure when we felt humiliated, when we really messed something up. You know, that's, that's intense for us, right? It's often intense in terms of outcomes. It's certainly intense emotionally. We remember that stuff and we pay attention to it. And then unfortunately, and this goes back to the lizard brain, there's a third bias called the negativity bias. Right, which is attention to the most terrible event. <laughs> we, we do, I'm afraid, even the most optimistic of us by nature, we do tend to remember and uh, intensify things that are, are kind of worrying, bad, dangerous, fearful, right? We all do this. I can see you nodding. Um, and then finally, and this is a real problem for people who are trying to find the truth, which is this thing called confirmation bias, which is what we tend to do is we make up our minds first and then we look for data to support our prior belief. So we, we pay attention to anything, you know, internal or external information that actually supports our prior bias or belief, whether that's right or wrong. Um, we tend to denounce or discard or ignore anything. Uh, and we, we probably can think of a few prominent figures on the world stage who offer... <laughs> often seem to uh, speak in that way, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, proximity bias, intensity bias, negativity bias, and confirmation bias. We've just got to be aware of these things 
And we're just wired up that way. There's nothing we can do about it. We mustn't be harsh on ourselves. But when we find ourselves you know, circling round and round with anxiety and worries and fears, these are the things we need to be aware of when we try to find solutions. But, you know, Ryan Thompson, you've, you've come up with a really fundamental first step, which is bring our minds back out of those reminiscences and those fears for the future, bring it back to the present, concentrate on the breath. And that's a really, really good starting place to start to create some space to, to have some clear thoughts. Nick, the awareness piece is like, I feel we're almost doing a disservice to the globe. Like, why isn't there a course on this? And this is not like a shameless plug. Like, like I feel like there should be like a class on that. Like, this is too important. And we have this massive mental, you know, mental health issue. I think, I think it's global. Mm. I also think we, we're not only coping with mental illness, I think there's spiritual illness, which we don't talk a lot about. I think those are connected. But you know, a lot of this is this, what sort of tools, what sort of training can we give ourselves to deal with this? And one other point, and you know this, because it's, it's kind of where you drove me into the book and then how my brain interpreted it was like, I do find it fascinating that the thing that calls all the shots is our central nervous system. Mm. So, you know, at the I mean, core that's where of you, we, it's where we live our lives. We live our lives in our heads. It's, it's how we make sense of everything that happens to us. And it's where we experience everything that life is bringing us. And what we create of it is actually entirely in there, right? It's starting to get quite philosophical, but it's true. You know, you can always look at a situation in at least two different ways, you know, in a positive way, a challenging, adventurous way, or in a fearful, defensive, resisting way. Um, I mean, those are two dichotomies, and there's, a, there's shades in between. But we have a choice. We always have a choice. And we have to give ourselves space to make a mindful choice about every event we, we, we come to. And you're right, Ryan. You know, I wish I'd learned this stuff in school. I've spent my whole adult life, you know, gradually stumbling towards some things that sometimes work for me. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm discovering with my kids, I don't know if, if it's true of yours, my, my children are four and five, and I see in their school curriculum that, that they are creating a little bit of space and time to talk about this kind of mind management stuff. So they do talk about mindfulness with, with my young kids. They talk about um, understanding emotions and, um, and, and taking on some of these little tricks and tips. Um, and I, I only wish that I'd started practicing that when I, you know, I had a much more agile and uh, fertile mind than I do now. But it's never too late to learn. It's never too late to practice. Um, and we do have to keep practicing this because remember what we're trying to do is to short circuit and work with those powerful impulses that come from our brainstem and our limbic system. So it really needs kind of daily active practice. So, you know, focusing on the breath, focusing on, on the here and now is a really great place to start creating some space. Um, but what are, what are some of the other things that we, you know, we can do in this situation of uncertainty and worry and fear and change? You know, we're all experiencing around the world enormous amounts of that. Um, there are opportunities to be courageous and to do something really special and out of the ordinary for ourselves. Um, but there are also threats wherever we look. So, you know, I guess, I, I guess there are perhaps ways of thinking about this, which, which I suppose in some ways reflect the way you talk about things in, 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 your, in your programs, Ryan, and your books. But if I can frame it in a slightly different way, there are maybe states of mind, and then there are ways you can take action. Love it. And a, a lot of this may be mirroring the kind of work you've done and you're doing. But I think, I think we, we have to sort of push our fear. We have to understand it. We have to name it. And then we have to, we have to face it head on. That's, that's the first state of mind we've got, to, we've got to be in. We've got to push our resistance. And, we, and what do we mean by resistance? Well, its origins are fear. And then I think the other state of mind to try and cultivate is, is, to, is to try and love what you're doing you know, whatever it is you have to do, find a way to love it. And, and the flip side of that is to try and find a way of doing what you love, right? 
you got to you got to work out what it is you love to do what you're strong at what gives you joy what gives you a state of flow and um, a state of being in the present what is that thing and and look for ways to exercise that and that that is a very positive way of taking yourself out of that frame of worry and and reminiscence um and then the other kind of frame of mind i think the third frame of mind which i find really helpful is to is to be grateful and to serve and to give and that sounds really preachy i know but it, something really strange happens when you kind of put yourself in a position where what you're doing is service service to the world to others to your family to your community it can just be the same thing you're doing anyway but if you just reframe it what i am doing is an act of love and service and a gift to the world it's very transcendent and it it's a very very good way of pushing that fear away so those those are the kind of ways i think about states of mind to cultivate does that make sense to you what do you reckon makes sense to me i think you know just understanding fear first of all for people is a big one like um like you were saying berman the the second one love what you're doing uh, again just reminded me of another guest we had his name's bracken daryl he's the ceo of logitech but he talked about you're not always going to love exactly what you're doing in work like and and some people just have to make a paycheck but what he did talk about is like having little experiments or things on the side like this podcast, for example, that give you some sense of joy, um, some semblance of growth, purpose in life. So I, I'm, I'm just curious on, on your thoughts on that one. You know, it, not everybody's going to have their dream job in life. But do, can hobbies replace that or other things that give you a sense of purpose that, that people find interest in? I mean, is that Absolutely. something that you've studied? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, um, that's, that's very true. And I think that's the origin of a lot of pastimes and hobbies. And it doesn't really matter what it is. It could be anything. It could be intellectual. It could be reading. It could be something physical. It could be arts and crafts. It could be sport. It could be something community-based. It could be something very personal. Um, and there's lots of ways that you know, introverts and extroverts exercise their, their kind of creative drive you know, to, to create something, um, to develop something, to practice something. Um, and... Uh, that is is very powerful, and if you get to do some of that at work, you're very lucky. Um, and you know, occasionally we all have those moments where, you know, we're we're really humming along in our work. We're doing something very creative and inspiring, and and it's new, uh, and and it's got some higher purpose as well. Sure. Not all of us have that that luck, but you know, there are moments when we can all have that. Um, and if we can't always get it enough at work, then yes, we need to create time to to do that in our in our hobbies and in, in our creative pursuits. And and it's often even more powerful when you get to do that with other people. So that's the other really fundamental human psychological need, which is to belong and connect with other human beings. And I think that's one of the reasons why this current situation is so challenging for so many people. You know, thankfully we've we've got this kind of technology that we're using right now. Um, but it, it probably only gets us 80% of the way there to connection. I don't know what you think about it. I mean, it's better than nothing. It's certainly better than a phone call, but it's not quite the same as a face-to-face -face beverage of some kind. Cup of tea in England or maybe a beer in some other countries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what about those nonverbal um, communication pieces? I mean, you study that. I mean, you get some of that over you know, Zoom, but I've interviewed tons and tons of people through my career and it's, there's nothing like being able to see how people interact with each other in a one-on-one -on -one or a group setting. I mean, there's so many nonverbal cues going on. Yeah, I think it's particularly uh, um, challenging when you are trying to interact in a group um, in a virtual way. I think a one-on-one, face-to-face -on -one, -face, or even one-to-two like we're doing now, I think that can be fairly effective, but once it gets above three people, um, all of those nonverbal cues and the, the pauses, uh, the, the nonverbal you know, communication with our faces and our hands, um, a lot of that gets very lost. Uh, I don't know whether you've noticed that, Ryan Berman, with you know, these large Zoom meetings that you've been hosting over the last few weeks and months, but 
it's, it's quite hard to get a sense of communication with the whole group. Well, look, I think, uh, let, let me, let me ask a question. Let me answer your question with a question or pose a question. Cause I think what if this whole exercise is about just about finding your people, like the whole thing. So when I was 21 and coming out of school and living like purely in Maslow, right? Just trying to survive in New York City, had like two or three people that I knew, just trying to survive, finding someone who believes in me. You can, you can see how fear plays in this. And now I'm, I'm, I'm double 21. I'm a little older than double 21, by the way. But and, and over that time, you sort of weed out the people that maybe it is a version of um, confirmation bias, by the way, but you weed out for you who's on your team and who isn't. And, and I think the action chats and even the podcasts, you know, Ryan Thompson and I, we used to work together, but we're, it's more than that. We're, we trust each other. We're friends. There's lots of people we worked with that we like at work, but like maybe doesn't believe in the same things that we believe in. And same thing with you, Nick, it was easy from the start because we shared curiosity. We shared like the idea of like never stop working. We shared the purpose side, like, for Ryan and I, we don't know if this is something that's monetizable. It's, it's sort of a secondary thing. We, we just think it's a space that's really interesting to both of us. And, and so even anyone who's in that action chat is a fairly qualified, vetted, not, not like completely strategic. It's just like if, if they're showing up and the mm-hmm. same people keep showing up, it's because they feel that their definition of logic matches ours. And hmm, not to go too meta, but when you said about our bodies, you know, we started as like we had tails and then our final, our final sort of shape is this. It's like, well, maybe this isn't our final, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, we need another hour to address that. Oh, no, I, I read something just today about evolution. Uh, and and the, the truth is that our genes are still evolving very fast. And there's a lot of genes involved with our intellectual capabilities, our brains, neuro, neurogenes that are evolving very fast still. And you know, even over the last few thousand years, we are different, we're, we're a different morphing species than we were you know, a, a, in the Iron Age and be, beyond. So there's every reason to be optimistic about our ability to not just adapt in, our, in a single lifetime and grow and change and learn, but even as a species, we are, we are moving. We are moving through time and space. So it's, you know, it, the, the journey is nowhere near done yet. In the spirit of um, really setting the stakes of what, like what, what we're coping with, I mean, if you're still listening here and we're like 35 or 40 minutes in, so you clearly are intrigued by this, this conversation. So, you know, I, I, I would love for you to talk about freezer flight and, I, and, and to do it in a way where it's, like there's really only 5% of us that are fighters. Like if you're in a room, I always like to do when I'm, when I'm speaking, I like to be like, I'll, I'll have five people stand up if I'm in a room of a hundred and be like, look around at everybody else that's stuck. Like for whatever reason, we can't see beyond ourselves. It's a context problem. So like, how can you shake people to see that this isn't just their problem? This is like everybody. And I think the minute you do that, you, you give yourself permission to like be human again and move forward. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in our modern experience, we're not often confronted with something that is just about to kill us. Maybe an occasional near miss um, in a car, you know, when we're driving. But we all recognize that surge of adrenaline that floods through us and leaves us shaking for minutes afterwards. I mean, it happens to me maybe once every couple of years. You know, I'll, get a, I'll have a near miss in a car. I used to do rock climbing, actually. Um, not a, not a, at a particularly high standard, but there's this thing that rock climbers call disco leg, um, where you find yourself, you know, halfway up a pitch and you suddenly recognize that you've taken off more than you can chew and it's always harder to down climb. So you know you've probably got to keep climbing up, but you're not sure where the next hold is and you're starting to run out of energy and you're running out of 
calm and you're running out of courage. And then what, what goes into its place is a surge of adrenaline and you suddenly think, if I fall, if I let go here, I'm going to die. And that is accompanied by the most incredible physiological experience. It's happened a few times to me. And, um, you know, so we don't get a lot of chance to practice our responses to that. That's, that's the thing. So I think that's one of the reasons why when we do find ourselves in a fearful situation, we, most of us just freeze because it's, we're not practicing how to take action. We're not practicing how to either defend ourselves and fight against that threat or to run away in a very effective way, right? So most of us, I think, just freeze in that situation. And if you find yourself in a low-grade state of fear and resistance and anxiety, that's maybe one of the reasons why we find ourselves just stuck and circling around with our thoughts, you know, staying awake at night, we're not really making progress. We're not coming up with solutions. We're just ruminating about the worries that we've got. We're, we're, we're frozen. And so that's, that's one of the tasks that we've got is to understand that better and to use some of the techniques we've talked about to, to you know, move away from that, to unblock it, um, and to, to kind of work, work into the next phase that we want to be in. I mean, that training, I mean, that, that's kind of where, where I landed, mm. right? Um, and again, it, when I was writing Return on Courage, it was this thousand days, I didn't think I would end up there, right? I thought I was writing a promotional piece for all my last company. I mean, that sounds terrible. But when I started to accept the responsibility that came with, with the book, that was the aha. That was the aha that our, our standard operating procedure is nervousness, and we've done nothing about it. Like there's no, it, you, you mentioned earlier, Nick, like you have a choice, but you don't, if you don't know you have a choice, you don't have a choice. Mm, mm, you're right. You're right. Right. So how do you help people like see that they have a choice? Ryan talked about taking a deep breath, creating that space. Like how do you short circuit the brain where they, they can start to see, start to practice courage or, or practice that, that creating that space to short circuit ourselves? Yeah. Well, I, th I think you, you've said it. You know, I think the first step is to understand and recognize what's actually going on in, in the different historical parts of our brain. So we've talked about that quite a bit today, and you, you talk about it in your book and your other programs. And then the second thing, as we've discussed a little bit today, is to find ways of beginning to create some space between stimulus and response. All right, we're not, we're not a lizard, you know, we're beyond being a lizard. We've still got a little bit of that history in us, but we have got the ability to create some space to think and to work it out. What are we gonna do? What is the right response here? And in order to help create that space more effectively, what we have to do is daily practice. We've gotta do daily practice. So for example, you know, if, we, if we're in a parental situation, we might want to start the car journey with a little talk to ourselves and say, right, you know, there, there's definitely going to be some loud noises during this journey, but this is how I am going to respond when it happens. You know, we're just going to think about it and prepare our minds for we, what we know is going to happen and ask ourselves to respond in a particular way. And then when that thing does happen, we're much more likely to respond in a calm, rational, thoughtful, positive way than if we hadn't prepared ourselves in advance. It's a trivial example, but we can, we can translate that to any number of situations at work or in the other parts of our lives. So I think we've got to focus. We've got to understand what, what we need to do. We've got to focus on what works for us. We've got to try things out. And we've got to practice and then we've got to persist. Okay, so this, these, are, these are the other, this is the other part, you know, that we talked about state of mind. And now I'm talking about how do we take effective action? And it's really about focusing on what is the right thing to do. You know, you've heard this, this phrase, you know, practice doesn't make perfect. You know, it's perfect practice that makes perfect. So we've got to practice the right thing to do, not just practice any old thing. So we've got to focus on what it is that we want to achieve and what is the right thing that we 
need to practice and we then need to practice it and we need to keep on practicing it we need to persist and that takes grit and it takes courage it takes energy and we have to do it all through the day that we're conscious so that's you know that's that's my message i think that's a fantastic message i it's it's not easy to do. I mean, like the, the biggest war is the one in your head. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say, at least for me. Um, you know, I, you're not alone, how man. You, how do you? <laughs> no, no one's alone. That's, that's, no one's alone in this. It's crazy. Um, no, and you know, we've got to also be kind to ourselves, actually. Yeah, you know? I mean, the truth is that I woke up in UK time this morning and I, I just didn't feel very good in my head. I was tired, I was grumpy, and it's taken me about 12 hours to to get my mojo back, which is good timing because now I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean that that all has to go with state of mind and you know, you can have the best practice in the world, but sometimes it's going to be harder than others. I I had a question just on you know, when you, when you're frozen, when you're just sitting there ruminating, you know, before you go to bed, whatever time it is because I'm sure it's happening to a lot of people right now, yeah, you know, sitting yeah. at home. How do you break that cycle? Yeah. I mean, cause sometimes it's just, sometimes you can snap out of it. You go for a run, you come back, you're in a completely different mood. Right. Or maybe it takes 12 hours like you on one day, but is there any tool that you've seen work where you can kind of just try and snap yourself out of it? Is it breathing exercises again? I, th I think breathing is a good option, but I think once again, Ryan Thompson, you've just provided, a great answer to that question, which is you, you, you move, you've got to move, you've got to go for a walk, <clears throat> do some exercise, <clears throat> excuse me, go for a run, move your body and get your mind out of that static place. So when you're frozen, you've got to move. Midnight runs are coming. <laughs> hey, were you no, having I, an I intensity bias? This. <laughs> Was that an intensity bias? You coughing on the podcast? Is that what just happened? He's like, yes, <laughs> still going. This is intensity bias happening yeah. right now. Can I, can I share something that I, that I do that I learned from, you know, I don't know how to do this without it being a, a plug for the book. So I'm just going to go do it. Let's do it. But, like, I don't like leaving things to chance where it's like, oh yeah, I should run. So like what I've done and like, this is super, I think this is super easy. I think this is like where tech, tech went, like tech is not ruining me is every, I have four or five alarms that go off on my phone where I've changed the label. And I have one that's every day, one that I see every day when I wake up. So when, this is the shameless part with the book, but when, you know, you and I were talking, Nick, and we were talking about the central nervous system, I'm like, wow, I wonder if I could develop a central courage system, right, to combat that. I had to get over my own biases of saying that term because hmm. i'm like who am i i'm not a doctor right <laughs> i went to television radio school who am i to come up with a term like that you know and i i felt bad about myself like i felt sh like i felt shame that i shouldn't be the one talking about this idea but by seeing it every day and creating a trigger every day because i knew it was right like in below my head i felt it was right like it could help people why wouldn't i hmm. continue to pursue this and so every day that I saw, I see it, it's still one of my alarms, by the way, build central courage systems, right? Help you combat your central nervous system with your central courage system. And now after seeing it for a thousand days, three years, I can, I can confidently say it. It's, it's a short circuited trigger. So whatever it might be for you, it's like, you can set these triggers. You can set these labels that come off on your phone. And we, I think we need them. I just don't think we can leave it to chance, frankly. And, and there are places where I think technology is overwhelming us and not helping us, but this is one place where I, I, I do think it can help us. Yeah, I, I like that. And we've all got access to watches and phones and other devices that can prompt us, nudge us in the right direction. So we can, when we're feeling good and we're in a planning frame of mind, we can do exactly what you've done. You know, just set these little prompts and, and nudges up on our devices and, and they will, you know, jolt us out of whatever mindset we're in at the time and get us back to where we need to be. So I think that's a brilliant idea. And I do love that someone who studied the brain as much as you have is still human enough to admit like, you know what? I woke up this morning. I felt like shit. 
<laughs> you know, and it took you 12 hours to get out of it. I mean, because we, again, I think it's, it's embracing that part of the, of humanity that we all feel that way. It doesn't matter who you are. There are times when you're gonna, you're gonna feel like shit and there's no reason why other than you just did. And so go back to what Thompson said earlier, like the thought isn't yours. Start yeah. to separate yourself from the thought. Yeah. So we've got to be, you know, we've got to be kind to ourselves and, and others and compassionate and curious. And, you know, these are also good states of mind to cultivate. Um, you know, and that's what you've done. You know, you're, you're a great example of your exploration and your curiosity about this has, has generated much fruit. Well, I gotta tell you, I love it. You know, so I, I am trying to design a, a life where I can do what I love around the clock and, mm. and, and the motives are pure. Like I do feel like we're helping people, you know, I mean, you have to want to be helped. There has to be a willingness on the other side, but I feel good. I, I could like, yeah, I sleep well at night knowing that I don't know how this is going to turn out. Right. And I found myself saying a couple times and maybe this, this helps too. I think courage makes us happier. So yeah. when we're, when we're stuck and we're afraid and we go through it and we get on the other side of it, right? We face that fear. I always like to say face fear and face it and replace it. Mm. Right. So once we get through it and actually go through it, don't bury it. Like for me, from where I was to where I am now, I still don't have clarity on like how this is going to turn out, but I'm much happier now than I was before. And Thompson, I know some of the stuff that you've been through. I can't imagine you feel differently. 100%. I mean, it's just like, I, I make the analogy to working out, right? Cause you can actually see the progress, but there's pain in there and there's, you know, there's the mornings when you don't want to get up and go for a run or go to the gym. But if you do it over time, you see the progress. So it's just, I don't know with this. I, the first thing I picked up on was just practice and, uh, that's all it is. I mean, every day you have yeah. to wake up and pay attention to this. And then yeah. the, the whole other side, like curiosity, discovery, all of that is, is what keeps us going. And, and the unknown is actually what's really exciting about it, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I think you're right on target, right on target. But yeah, we do need to practice, you know, in an aware way. We've got to decide what, what is going to work. And then that's the thing we've got to practice with discipline and persistence and grit. And, you know, and little by little, our experience of the practice bears more fruit. It becomes more effective. You can see it working just like we're building muscles or building fitness. We're building brain fitness and we're, we're securing and solidifying brain circuits that are going to help us and not hold us back. So it's worth doing and it can be done, but we have to keep practicing. I feel like my mind just went to the gym today. So I'm very happy that we had you on. And uh, Nick, we, why don't we, you and I need to set up, like, let's do it like a, a brown drink Zoom. Okay. <laughs> let's, do a brown, let's set up a brown drink Zoom uh, just, to, just to jam for an hour and not talk. You know, we'll see where it goes, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And a nice cup I, of tea. That's a brown drink. Whatever brown drink you want to bring. That's not the one I'm bringing. I'm just telling you, just between you and me. Appreciate your time today, Dr. Nick. And um, hope, I have a feeling you won't, this is not the last time you're coming on this podcast. It's just, we could talk to you for hours. Really appreciate you giving us your insight here. Yeah, it's my great pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. It's been really good fun. Thank you. Thank you. Next week on The Courageous Podcast, we're joined by the global head of marketing at Snapchat, Katie Babineau. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars, subscribe, and leave us a comment.